What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Finance for Physicians podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Wren. Join me as we dig into what it looks like for physicians to begin using their finances as a tool to live better lives. You can learn more about our resources at financeforphysicians.co. Let's jump into today's episode. Hey, guys. Hope you're having a great day. I'm uh, excited to share my conversation today with Dr. Matthew Sleep. Matthew is a he's a very um, successful guy. He had a, a career in medicine and was in the business of saving lives like many of you guys. He worked in the emergency room for a while and then was eventually uh, chief of a hospital medical staff. But now he has uh, transitioned out of medicine and uh, he teaches and preaches and writes about what I would consider some of the big, serious topics of faith. And today we're going to be talking about his recent book called Hope Always. Uh, this book is all about how you can be a force for life in a culture of suicide. So that's a, a big time topic. Not a lot of people are talking about, but it's definitely all over uh, the place. We all know people struggling with depression and 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 probably know people who have attempted suicide or, or, or maybe even committed suicide. I know I have. But like I said, it's just it's just one of those topics people are, are not talking about. But Matthew is different. He's tackling it head on. And I think what's especially interesting about him is he's he's taking a very unique approach, uh, culturally unique approach to addressing it and um, and dealing with the problem. You'll find out more about the approach he's taking and what that looks like. Uh, in our conversation today, but I'll give you a, a hint. It's probably something you've you've never really heard before. So without further ado, we'll jump into our conversation. What's up, everyone? I'm excited to have my guest, Dr. Matthew Sleeth, on today, particularly be- because of his background. He, as you'll hear in a, in a moment, came up as a emergency room physician and has a lot of experience in and, and stories around that, but in particular, some of his uh, new projects that he's been working on. I'm, I'm super excited to get into those and, um, and, and talk through those. But um, before we jump into that, I was hoping, well, first of all, Matthew, I really appreciate you coming on. My pleasure. I'm especially uh, interested in just kind of hearing a little bit about kind of your uh, career path, uh, particularly, you know, the, the, the medicine part of it and kind of, you know, what that looked like and, and kind of how you've progressed. Yeah. I, I got to medical school in the weirdest way. <laughs> I, <laughs> I had uh, married into a Jewish family. I wasn't born uh, Jewish. And I tell people that if you're married into a Jewish family and you want to get on the good side of your in-laws, there's only one surefired way I know of to do it. And it isn't to convert. It's to go to medical school. Oh, nice. And did <laughs> and it work? So, yeah, uh, <laughs> it, it pretty much worked. And so, uh, but the problem with that was that I had flunked out of high school and uh, had been a terrible student. I never had chemistry, biology, algebra, nothing. I mean, and so I talked to an uncle of mine. And he said, I will get you into undergraduate school. I've been a carpenter for seven years. He said, I'll, I'll get you into undergraduate school. You'll have a semester and the rest is up to you. And so I uh, started undergraduate school. And uh, two and a half years later, I was accepted to multiple med schools without an undergraduate degree. So 
It also shows you what you can do if you're motivated and you're married to my wife. <laughs> <laughs> it's always good. Yeah. So, so you, you went med, med school, went into emergency. I guess, what, what was your training like in, in, in the medical? Actually, I did a residency in family practice. I, I knew that I wanted to do emergency medicine. And at that time, about half the family, half of the ER slots were filled by family practice doctors. There's yeah. only two residencies that take all comers, and, and that's family practice and ER. And uh, so it was pretty common when I did it to do either. I, I could have done an ER residency, but I knew I wanted to be in a more rural area. And so I did a, I did a family practice residency. Mm -hmm. But I never did anything other than emergency medicine. And you did emergency medicine the whole way through? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you got into the administrative side, is that correct? Yeah, I was the ER director and then became chief of staff uh, at the hospital. You, that happens to you if you don't show up for a meeting, you get elected. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's funny. So I, I know you are now, I don't know, I guess if you would call it retired from medicine. You're not practicing at all now, correct? Yeah, I no longer do clinical medicine. The thing that happened was uh, for me is that I met the Lord. And uh, I had been an atheist and just a number of things started going wrong in our life, starting with my, my wife's brother drowned in front of my children. Mm. She got depressed. She wouldn't get treated. Just one after, it was kind of like dominoes going down. And I started looking for what, what is the, what is, where does the good on this planet come from? And, and if you, you've ever been at a trauma code of a John or a Jane Doe, you know, somebody who was hit and they don't have their wallet with them. Let's say they're out jogging and you're running that code and you step back and you look and there may be anywhere from 10 to 15 people, you know, in a trauma room with hundreds of years of combined experience, all trying to save somebody who doesn't even have a name. Well, there's something beautiful about that and there's something absolutely good. And so I said, you know, if there's evil on this planet, where does the good come from? And by the way, evil and good are, are spiritual concepts. They're not, they're, they don't fit into an atheistic, scientific, I only believe it if I can measure it and reproduce it kind of paradigm. And, uh, and that culminated in, uh, well, I read the Ramayana, the Bhagavad Gita, the Quran, but it, it culminated in me picking up a Bible and, um, and reading it. And, and meeting Christ. And mm -hmm. it's been a real adventure since then. I wish that God had called me into some kind of clinical medicine because I love doing it. Um, but God calls us into what he wants to call us into. Yeah. And, right. and our job is to go. You know, so. so the conversion into your faith started to change the trajectory of your career? Correct. You know, and, uh, you know, up until that point, our religion had really been the American dream. And the American dream is to live in the best house that you can, accumulate as much money and things as you can, send your kids to the best school that you can. And the underlying thought behind that is that somehow you're going to get out of this life alive. <laughs> yeah, right. And, um, and you just never really face that. And... And of course, believing in Christ is is completely about belief in that there's more, that this is just the the very entrance of, of what life is about. 
that it goes for thousands, millions of years, that sort mm -hmm. of thing, that the soul is immortal. Mm -hmm. You said before we were starting to record, a good friend of yours had some hard conversations or said some, um, I don't remember the wording you used, some uh, hard to hear things. Yeah, I was, I was talking about a uh, friend that was a physician who was the first Christian guy I knew. By the way, the first hospital, uh, the hospital where I was as I became a Christian, I wanted to know somebody else who was a Christian. I wanted desperately to, to discuss, you know, what I'm reading in scripture. And uh, we probably, we weren't a big hospital. We weren't a small hospital. We probably had 350 docs on staff and I couldn't find one that went to church at Christmas time. This was on the coast of Maine. Uh, so I was telling you about the first doc I met and who was a believer. And I remember he said hard things to me. We started going to a small group that he ran and he, every, his small groups would go and split and split. He, they, they had to do like stock splits every <laughs> 12 <laughs> he was months a, or so because he was a high they grew. Growth. Yeah. And, and I, we, we came a few times and as a family and then, we didn't come and he called me. He said, what, what's going on? I said, well, you know, you've got some, you've got some real characters there that I just don't have a whole lot in common with. And I'm, I'm not getting a whole lot out of it. And there was a moment of quiet. And he said, Matthew, do you, do you really think you're here to get you, you, you're, you're, God has brought you into the church to give. <laughs> Ooh, mm. <laughs> you know, that kind of, <laughs> so God sent me a saint uh, to teach me <laughs> uh, yeah. to begin with. Yeah. So those sort of experiences and, you know, the career progression started to change. What did that look like? Was it like a snap of the finger? You're out. It wasn't a snap of the finger. I, I went to the hospital board and told them I was resigning. Their first reaction was, oh, you're going to brand X bigger hospital because, you know, to make more money. I'm like, no, I, no, I, no. I'm, I'm quitting and I, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to follow God. And, uh, and so I would do some moonlighting. If you're an ER doc, you can always moonlight. And I kind of moonlighted for a couple of years as I began studying scripture. And then I wrote my first book. And uh, then there was sort of no turning back. I, I, I realized that you can't have two masters. And as much as I love medicine, that God wanted me in ministry full time. Mm -hmm. And so today, I know um, part of the reason we connected is kind of I, you know one of your areas that you're focusing on is in uh, depression and suicide and, and ways to uh, manage that. That's a, that's a tough topic um, and that it seems like nobody wants to talk about. It's taboo. Um, what, what made you start going down? I have a feeling I know what the answer is to this, uh, that path of, of getting into that sort of taboo topic. Yeah, I, the, the answer is that I think God has called me to speak to the church in areas that are not popular, yeah. uh, that they don't want to hear, yeah. but that is fundamental to the faith. And so areas like um, that I've uh, written and spoken about, like Sabbath, again, not, not a popular topic, but fundamental to the faith, really. And suicide is uh, an area that First of all, at, at just a secular level, it, it, it's grown by 2% every year for the last couple of decades and shows no signs of slowing down or abating. And um, the uh, 
secular world and the and the mental health professionals have no way of dealing with this worsening crisis other than to do more of what they've been doing, which hasn't been working. And so, you know, I went to scripture where I think, you know, we find the answers to everything and um, found that only the Bible, so far as I know, the, the Bible is the only sacred text on the planet that says where suicide comes from. And there on the first page, you have Adam and Eve in paradise being told you can't do this one thing. And if you do it, you will surely die. You'll be committing suicide. Your, 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 your life will end. And they not only did it, um, but they had help. There's a character called Satan there that is urging them on. And it's interesting because in the way that suicide is approached now, you, we approach people as a combination of mind and body in the way suicide has traditionally been approached in the Western world, you are mind, body, and soul. And so the just approaching it as mind and body is not working. It gets worse every year. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a, a little bit about the statistics I thought were, um, I'd never heard it uh, expressed the way you did and how those have changed over time and how there's a lot of misleading or, you know, you got to peel back the layers to understand what's really happening. Yeah, you have to peel. I, I don't think there's any, um, you know, malfeasance in this, but to uh, uh, to peel back the, the layers, suicide is measured in the number per 100,000 per year. And that's so we can compare one time to another or one population to another, one country to another. And right now in the United States, we're at 14 and a half suicides per 100,000 people per year. Well, what does that mean? It, it, it's just a number. And, it's, and, and frankly, it's humans don't respond that great to numbers. Um, mm. You know, I didn't marry my wife because the numbers were right. <laughs> <laughs> Although I've heard that happen. Probably not a good idea. <laughs> yeah, probably not a good idea. But And so 14 and a half per 100,000 per year does tie the all-time high in our society um, in the United States that was experienced during the Depression. But then I wanted to kind of look at that a little more closely. And when you look at it with a, a little bit more of a sophisticated eye, as it were, or, you know, a probing eye, you find out that that number really means almost nothing. Because in 1930, it was much easier to kill yourself. In 1930, if you overdosed on something and somebody wanted to call an ambulance, well, good luck. The majority of the homes in the United States didn't have a phone. But let's say you had a phone and you pick it up. Well, the majority of towns in the United States in 1930 didn't have an ambulance service. But okay, let's say they did. You get to a hospital. The majority of hospitals didn't have emergency departments in 1930. They didn't have casualty wards. even. So let's say you got all that. Well, if you've overdosed on narcotics, there's nothing you can do to reverse them. If you've overdosed on, you know, uh, 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 a poison, a fertilizer, let's say, which was a common thing, uh, there's no way to identify it. There's no way to reverse it. The most common thing that happens really in, in lethal overdoses is to knock out the respiratory drive. In 1930, you're dead. <laughs> Today, we put people on mechanical ventilators and get them over that. And so that if you had to take the one and a half million people that will be seen in the coming year for suicide, uh, seen in emergency departments, and transport them back to 1930, uh, we would have a suicide rate somewhere between two and 300 per 100,000. 
but then it gets worse. In 1930, they had nothing to treat depression with. I don't even believe that insulin uh, shock therapy was used yet. It's probably the late 30s that that came in. And so, um, and so there's nothing to treat depression with. In 2021, one in eight Americans, adults, are permanently on an antidepressant. But then it gets worse because we count things differently. In 1930, if you were found on the ground with dead with a heroin syringe uh, beside you, that was counted as a suicide. Today, unless there is a suicide note in an overdose, that's counted as an accident. Even if you just took the overdose deaths and added them back into suicide the way they would be, the suicide rate would quadruple. And, and so, in fact, we're at a, a place that no society's ever been, and it's simply technology that's saving nine out of 10 of the people that are attempting suicide. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I heard you know, the, that breakdown to me was in some ways shocking, but then in other ways, I kind of, I've read a lot about the, um, you know, depression being such a big issue in our culture and society, which is, I guess, culturally kind of counterintuitive because you're like, well, we're the, people think of happiness tying to wealth or whatever, and we're the wealthiest country ever. And, and, you know, why do, why are we unhappy? Yeah, they knew the Great Depression. They knew why they were depressed. The The stock market had collapsed. The banking system had collapsed. Those are two separate things. The economy collapsed. Mm -hmm. A quarter of all working adults were out of work. Right. And the environment had collapsed. That's the era of the Dust Bowl. And there's millions of uh, people losing their farms and, and way of life. So they knew why they were depressed. I think if you ask the average American today why they're depressed they'd be hard pressed to give you an answer mm -hmm. why is that that we don't have an answer it's well i think because we've denied the fact that we're not only uh mind and body but that we're also uh spiritual as well so we're completely avoiding that part of yeah we've unmoored ourselves from the anchor of god and the concept that we are not just animals the interesting thing, by the way, is no animal commits suicide. There's no animal model that you can study suicide with. And for for 75 years, psychologists have have tried to uh, come up with, you know, an animal model. And they've tortured a lot of rats and monkeys. But in fact, they've they've come up with with nothing. And so that's um, just because no. You know, we are unique in the animal kingdom for ending our lives, for being attracted to the things that kill us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we have an awareness of this greater purpose, or what is our purpose? Or Yeah, what is our, what is our purpose? Modern thinking, is secular thinking, is that we are an accident, and that uh, when we die, that's it. And therefore, you know, nothing... Nothing matters, really. So mm -hmm. it's not a very satisfying worldview <laughs> in yeah, many ways. Right. You told a, or so I read your book, um, Hope Always, and there was a story you shared about sitting next to someone on an airplane and 
I think I think it was a female started to describe their experience with their child sharing suicidal thoughts. Is that right? Yeah, I was flying back into Lexington, so little little commuter. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, Jack, two seats, aisle and two seats. And um, I was sitting by the window, and there was a woman sitting next to me, and then her two sons uh, were sitting across the aisle. And I think they were 13 and 10, 13, 11, something like that. And uh, they were jetting back from a uh, sports engagement. And um, she and her husband took these kids all over the country to camps, to games, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, that's what they were coming back from. And she talked and talked. And really, as we were getting close to Lexington, she finally said, well, what do you do for a living? And I, and I said, well, I'm a writer. And uh, kind of left it at that. And she said, well, what, what are you writing about? I said, well, my, my latest book is about suicide. She got very, very quiet. She said, just last week, my son, my 13-year-old, said he didn't want to live anymore. And I said, how did, how did you respond? And she said, I, I told him, that's, that's crazy. Look at all the things that your parents do for you and all the opportunities that you have. But he was expressing that his life was miserable um, to him. And so I think that was a mom who didn't mean any harm. Uh, she obviously was doing what she thought was being a, a super parent. And yet he was at a very, very different place. and. What I would uh, have said if she'd asked me what she should do <laughs> is to say, why do you feel that way? And even, even more, why do you, uh, do you have a plan uh, for that? In our, our city, and I know you have listeners everywhere, but in, in our, uh, our city of uh, Lexington, Kentucky, in a three-month period of time, we had a 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-old, 13, 14-year-old commit suicide. This is be, becoming a disease of young people uh, to an extent that it, that it wasn't before. And you've got to engage and you've got to actually get there before they express it the first time. There have been studies that have shown that uh, teenagers, by the way, the number one killer of 13-year-olds in the United States is suicide. It's not even mm-hmm. accidents anymore that they may have as little as 30 minutes between their first thought about suicide and actually attempting it. And so we, we've got to be there with uh, these young people before <laughs> the subject comes up mm-hmm. and doing the things that prevent it. And one of those things is this is not your thought. This is a thought from outside yourself that means you harm and evil and recoil from that, that thought. And then tell somebody who can help you. And you mentioned um, secular thinking or the, the culture maybe as a whole kind of adopts this philosophy that um, you're an accident. And so if you throw that into the mix, it's like, I'm sure that amps it up even, you know, makes it worse. It's like, yeah, it's, it's what, what does it matter? And, and we see that being reflected in, in the law of the land or, around the world. Uh, Canada has what's called the MAID law. It's the medical assistance in dying. And that law has, was amended this year so that somebody can go into a physician and demand to be put to sleep, even if they don't have a terminal disease, even if their only diagnosis is mental illness. 
And that's going to be extended to make uh, a 10, 11 year old emancipated minor once they come to that decision. To give an example of how you know deeply this has spread into society, I wrote a editorial for the Lexington Herald uh, leader and in the last line. I said, I'm going to paraphrase, but it's time that we started thinking about things like concepts like God and and faith in preventing suicide and even the concept that suicide is a moral wrong. And the Lexington Herald leader rejected that line. In an op-ed piece, I am no longer allowed to even have an opinion that suicide is wrong. Hmm. And and that's in Lexington, Kentucky, you know, the buckle of the Bible belt. <laughs> It's a, um, so we're, we're, we're going to be in a place, you know, in a year or so where a 10 year old can go to a, uh, their pediatrician and demand to be put to sleep without the parents uh, being notified. Mm-hmm. You also told a story. I think it was maybe your uh, grandmother, something she told you that stuck with you about. Yeah, it was a, it was a, a great, great aunt who, uh, I'll tell you how old she was. Uh, one Wise. time she grabbed me by the shoulders and she said, and, and I was, you know, she'd do that occasionally to really get my attention. She said, Matthew, now I'm getting too old and I'm not going to be able to tell you later. Let me tell you about being a child in the Civil War. <laughs> so in, uh, you know, in, in 1960, she was, you know, relating what uh, happened, uh, you know, a little bit over a hundred years before. And, um, so anyways, uh, she grabbed me by the shoulders and she said, uh, you are, she said, you're a rascal. <laughs> and, <laughs> Start and, there. Uh, and God loves you. And he puts you here for a purpose. And he loves you so much. And you're such a rascal. He had to assign two angels to you. And she <laughs> looked back over my shoulders. And I swear she saw them or whatever and winked at them. And but what she was d- saying to me is that I wasn't an accident, that, that God loved me uh, enough, by the way, to assign me two angels <laughs> or whatever. And I don't think a lot of kids are hearing that. Uh, they're hearing over and over again, we love you, but not enough to stay married. And so you're going to spend weekends with dad. And, we, you know, they're just hearing these things that, in fact, th- there's nothing that they can count on. And, uh, and that, that's, that's not a worldview that's going to work for them. I'm curious what your thoughts are on um, medicine and physicians in particular. And I have, my understanding is there, uh, su- the rate of suicide within that profession is even a tick higher than, than uh, the, the. Yes, there have been studies that show physicians have a, a high, and dentists have a high suicide rate. And I think one of the things is they know how to kill themselves. <laughs> they know how to be successful at that. So I don't know that there's more attempts uh, or whatever, and that, that's where those numbers get hard to assess. And they have the the means and the access uh, to uh, you know drugs that that are lethal, and, and so they they tend to be successful when they when they try suicide. And just in general, uh, women try suicide four times, uh, excuse me, twice as much as men, but men are four times more successful. And that's simply because men reach for firearms more often and that it's a more lethal uh, means. In my clinical career, I didn't really see that. I saw women doing just as lethal uh, things and killing themselves really at the same rate as men. But, but that's the stats. So the other 
part about being a physician is you have this, um, you're going to interact with a lot more of the scenarios with other people showing signs of suicidal thoughts or, you know, deep depression or whatnot. And not everybody is a psychiatrist or even, I'm not sure even what their training is, but on this, but what, what sort of things, um, are there suggestions you have for, you know, those that are, maybe they resonate with the idea of what we're talking about and, but haven't quite approached it from this angle and they're using more of the, you know, prescribed methodology, um, any suggestions for how to kind of yeah. reach this sub- uh, subject? Yeah. I, first of all, I wrote hope always uh, there's, uh, to be part of an answer, mm-hmm. not, not an exploration of why things are wrong. <laughs> and we often in our society, go to people who are complete failures at stuff and, and ask, how, how do you become a success? Uh, as an example, when I wrote my first book, the two most popular books on relationships, how to have a good relationship with the opposite you know, sex was uh, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, and making relationships work. And that's uh, Stephen Gray and Barbara D'Angelo were the with the authors of those or are the authors of those books. And the interesting thing is there's a relationship between those. That's his fifth wife and that's her third husband. <laughs> that's and so I didn't want hope always to be like that, an exploration of why things are wrong. I wanted to know why, why are committed Christians four to six times less likely to take their lives than an atheist? I wanted to know what got people over those hard times and why we have people in the church who uh, suffered with depression and at a time before medicines, and yet they didn't kill themselves. People like George Frederick Handel and C.S. Lewis and Henry Nouwen and Mother Teresa and, you know, so on on and so on. And I wanted to know what kept them alive. And I think, by the way, we should use everything that works. (laughs) And, and so if medicines work for somebody spectacular, you know, I, I'm all for that. And I, and I plead with people in the book, never stop a medicine without a prescriber's uh, say so. But the number one reason that people gave why they came to the brink of suicide and backed away was fear of the Lord, fear of what would happen afterwards, fear of the consequences, that, that it wasn't all over. And scripture says that the fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom to understand that there's something much, much bigger than us, much, much more powerful is the beginning of wisdom. And the second reason that they backed away was concern over the effect of those left behind. And suicide is a devastating uh, thing. For your listeners who've had a family member commit suicide, they they can tell you that they don't stop hurting in a couple of months or a year or even a couple of years. sticks sticks with them forever. And but again, we see that those people that backed away um, because of concern for others. Well, that that's the model of Christ's life is to be more concerned to, to, to make yourself less and, and to make others more. And so 
for those who are interested, I would say, you know, get hope always. I, I have a, your listeners are physicians, so I'll tell them to go buy their own copy. But, <laughs> but my standard offer, and you may have some listeners who are not physicians. Well, how about in residency and fellowship? <laughs> in residency, you, they can get a hold of me and I'll send them a copy. I, I just want people to have this as a tool. And, and I, we already, you know, it's been out uh, several months, but we already have the feedback that this has saved lives, that this, this different approach is, is, is saving lives. And you don't know until you write a book, until it's out there, what the results are going to be. Um, but I would say that if, if somebody wants to explore a different way of approaching this and viewing it and, and getting, you know, through their own dark nights, Buy the book Hope Always, and if you can't afford it, you get a hold of me, and I'll send you one. Yeah, I appreciate that, filling out that offer. I know it's, uh, I, I took them up on the offer. Well, I paid, I gave a donation for the uh, book, and um, and it was definitely a, a great read. And I, you know, what really got me thinking about it is every, we have interactions with lots of people, and it's kind of like, having CPR training, it's, I feel like it's my duty to at minimum understand the high level of how this works. Not exactly, but like at least enough to say, you know, kind of help point people in different directions. And, and this is, we have, I have immediate people in my family and relatives and that sort of thing that I know have been in this realm of suicidal thoughts and and very many people that I know of that have been in deeper depression. And so um, I feel like this is a, a big problem and, and, and is seems to be getting worse. And it's, it's just feels like such a good thing in the tool belt to have that uh, ability to kind of, cause we, I have no idea. I don't, I don't, and nobody's talked about it. It's so that's why, you know, it's such a good thing to um, I think those sorts of topics, nobody talks about, sometimes they're some of the best topics to kind of jump head in into, especially in um, when it's affecting you and or going to affect you and young people. Um, I think it's going to get worse. Um, and, you know, that's going to be one of the challenges we face. You know, it's an unbelievably rewarding thing to save a life. <laughs> it's just, uh, it, it floated my boat as an ER doc. My, my son is a one-man baby-saving machine and, uh, in, uh, in a missions hospital in, in Africa. It, it, it's, just, it's the most uh, rewarding work, but you don't have to go to medical school for this one. The, mm -hmm. All you have to do is you know, read a book like this or a similar book and just have a few tools in your tool belt pull out and in the one thing that you do uh learn in this book and every other like it is that that silence is not the way to approach the topic that you have to be willing to extend yourself enough to ask a question have you been thinking about harming yourself mm. and then the, the follow if the answer is yes the follow-up question is do you have a plan and i i know that um my wife called me from a home a few years ago, and they had a 10-year-old son who was having a difficult time uh, acclimating to the American scene. He was from Africa. And uh, my wife was worried about him, 
And she called me and said, what do I do? And I said, you, you got to ask that question. And that was hard for her, mm -hmm. but she asked it. And he said, yes, I have been. And then she said, now what do I do? And he said, <laughs> does he have a plan? He had a plan. He knew exactly which knife he was going to get out of the kitchen drawer and when he was going to do it when the family was asleep and he was going to slice his wrists. And he was, and, I, and she said, now what do I do? <laughs> I said, now you go to the hospital, um, which, which they did. And, uh, but here, uh, two, three years later, that, that fellow is alive and, and doing well. Mm -hmm. But if you don't go through that uncomfortable moment of asking, are you thinking about harming yourself? You're giving up the opportunity to be the most profound influence that somebody can be on someone else's life. And that's saving it. And sometimes you do these things and you don't even know. We, because of this book, we had a woman contact us and she said, you probably don't remember me, um, but I've, I've, I've read this book now. And when I was 19 years old, uh, your family just asked me to go on a picnic. You didn't know me really. You just asked, uh, would I go on a family picnic? She said, I was ready to kill myself. <laughs> and so I think, you know, with these younger people, particularly having gone through COVID, they're so isolated that we need to be getting into their lives and saying, hey, can I meet you for breakfast? Hey, you know, can we get together on a regular basis and go for a walk, et cetera? Have a conversation. Yeah. One last um, question before we jump off here. I, I was hoping you would uh, share the story about the radio show you were doing with, a, I think it was a, a church group or some guys you know. Yeah, the book had just come out and uh, I went to do, uh, it was, it's called Solid Steps Radio, and the uh, two pastors run this. And I'd been on the show a number of times before. I really enjoy them and their audience and everything. And, and so they took me out to lunch beforehand. And then one of them said, uh, Matthew, I got a favor to ask you. There's somebody I knew decades ago who I haven't had contact with who's gotten in touch with me. And he's not a Christian, and he has lost two sons to suicide and a son-in-law, and he has a gun and a plan to use it on himself. Uh, would you mind if he sat in while we did the show? And so he did, and at the end of the show, the three of us just laid our hands on him and prayed for him. That was on a Thursday. On Sunday, I was sent a picture of him being baptized. And uh, when I came to his church, three months later, which was Southeast Christian, you know, Jagunda Church. And that's not even mega, that's Jagunda. He's very big. <laughs> yeah. He was there and just just beaming and happy to be alive and, and that sort of thing. And it's just the just an illustration that when the church says, we're here, don't kill yourself, people respond to it. But the church has been completely quiet on, on this. Um, so particularly for your listeners who are involved in the, in the Christian faith, I would say arm yourself and get out there and make a difference, literally a life and death difference in your colleagues' lives, your friends' lives, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's a big deal. Absolutely. Well, Matthew, I really enjoyed talking through this and appreciate you coming on to share. Likewise, Daniel. It's been an honor. As always, thank you so much for joining us today. 
If you found this valuable, please give us a review on iTunes and share with a friend. Also check out our website at financeforphysicians.co for all sorts of additional content. See you next time. Finance for Physicians is not an investment, tax, legal, or financial advisor. All content included in this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered financial tax or legal advice. Material presented is believed to be from reliable sources and no representations are made by Finance for Physicians as to another party's informational accuracy or completeness. All information or ideas provided should be discussed in detail with an advisor, accountant, or legal counsel prior to implementation. If you don't have an advisor or would like a second opinion, feel free to check out our website for recommended advisors.